Amen. God indeed is faithful. He is faithful to his people and he is good. He is good indeed. If you have a Bible, please open with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, if you think back a couple weeks, you may remember that we began a look at verses 12 through 19. We made it through verse 16. And so this morning we're going to pick up at verse 17. So 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 17 through 19 is our focus this morning. And we will be considering again our fellowship with Christ. Really this falls under the heading that goes all the way back to verse 12 where we see the fellowship that we have with Christ. Now there's a clear shift in this text at verse 17, but... What we see in verses 17 through 19 is that they really serve to undergird and to underpin and to anchor the truths from verses 12 through 16. So it's really all one long section, but there's so much truth that we're splitting it up into a couple, a couple weeks. So I want to read the entire text all the way back to verse 12, and then we will ask the Lord's help and His blessing as we study His Word And then I kind of want to reset the scene, kind of look at verses 12 through 16 in in nutshell form, and then we'll launch into verse 17. So please stand with me as we give honor and reverence to the Lord as we read his word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through the end of the chapter. This is holy and inspired and inerrant scripture. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now join with me and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we acknowledge that our minds are so feeble, they're so weak, our hearts are so easily overcome and overwhelmed with griefs and the sorrows of this world and just the things of this world. We acknowledge that and we confess that to you, and yet now we come to your throne of grace boldly to ask for help in our great time of need. 
Lord, it is a glorious Christ that we serve. The one who was humbled yet for a time, only to be raised and exalted and given the name which is above every name. Lord, how we pray that at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ indeed is Lord. As we come to your word, Lord, we know that all scripture ultimately must point to and find its, its ultimate fulfillment somehow in Christ. So it's our prayer, Lord, that you would show us Christ in the scriptures. Lord, it's our prayer that you would help us to understand what is the height and depth and length and breadth of your love, a love that surpasses all comprehension and knowledge. Lord, would you write your word upon our hearts and then by the power of your spirit working in the hearts of your people cause us to go out and live transformed lives. For Lord, if we're not changed by your word, then our gathering is utterly pointless and utterly vain. So would you, by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive and apply the truth. Lord, I pray that your commands would not be burdensome to us. Pray that we would fix our eyes upon the great prize of our salvation, who is also the author and finisher of all faith, Jesus Christ himself. Lord, would you help us to count it an honor? Would you help us to be humbled at the fact that we are counted worthy to suffer with our Savior? Lord, would you give us hearts that desire to share and have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ? Lord, at times this life can be so heavy. It can be so difficult. Trials can be overwhelming. But God, you are faithful. You're faithful, and you're good, and your steadfast love endures forever. And we be a people who are faithful to you, our God. And we be a people who love you, who are devoted to you, who offer up our lives to you as a living sacrifice of worship. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth? For your word is truth. Show us Christ and transform us, conform us to his image. I ask in his name, amen. So as you think back to the, the big picture of this text, you have this idea. Peter tells us to joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ, 
because He has delivered us from the judgment and the condemnation of our sin, and because God is faithful. Joyfully endure suffering. Joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ, because God is faithful, and He has delivered you from the eternal condemnation that your sin has deserved. We looked really at just the first part of that last time a couple weeks ago. Joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ. That's really what Peter addresses in verses 12 through 16, that we joyfully bear up under the sufferings of this world. Peter says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange is happening to you. Do not be surprised. Expect suffering. And don't just expect some minor difficulty. Expect fiery trials. It's in this crucible of suffering that the Lord forms Christ and his people. And so whether it's suffering persecution, which is what Peter has in mind here, or if it's every other trial that comes upon God's people, you must expect hardship. And as you walk through hardship, you understand that you, in some unique way, have fellowship with Christ. You are communing with Him. You are enjoying, if you can enjoy a trial, you are enjoying union with the Savior. Peter says that to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of the glory of Christ, you might rejoice with exultation. That means you fight for joy. That means when your spirit is crushed within you, you fight to be joyful by fixing your eyes upon Christ. Because when the world crumbles around you, you have nothing else to cling to but you cling to Christ and your strength fails and he holds you. Christ holds and he sustains and you keep on rejoicing because you see that glorious end where you rejoice with exultation at the revelation of the glory of Christ. Think about that song, Christ the sure and steady anchor. Last verse, you you build up to this crescendo where the song says, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. You keep on rejoicing so that you rejoice with exultation when you are face to face with Jesus Christ in heaven. Keep on rejoicing. Fight for joy. You say, how do I do that? If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So not only do you fight for joy, but you must understand that you are blessed when you suffer because the spirit rests upon you in a way that you cannot know when everything is sunshine and roses. When the storms come, when you are brought to the end of yourself, you are blessed because you're carried along in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
you know the grace of God that is sufficient for your every weakness, the grace of God that is perfected, His power that is wrought and worked in you when you struggle and labor and toil and strive, and then you run out of strength. That is when God's grace is at work within you. It's through suffering that we most pointedly learn to walk by the Spirit. It's through suffering that you learn to heed Paul's command to walk by the Spirit. Because you've got nothing else to hold on to. You have no other strength to press on in. And so you walk by the Spirit, and then you don't gratify the desires of the flesh, and you glorify God, and hallelujah, what joy that brings. Peter even kind of hits on that. Make sure that you don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Make sure that you don't suffer for the sake of your sin because sin will bring suffering. Not only will the world hate you if you sin against people of the world, but the Lord will discipline you if you are His child. So Peter says, don't suffer because of that, but if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed Don't be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. Be like the disciples in Acts 6. You suffer as a Christian, and you rejoice because the Lord has counted you worthy to suffer for His name. And again, we can broaden that out, kind of outside of the realm of persecution, and say that we know as God's people, when we suffer, it is because the Lord is working sanctification in us. He is weaning us off of the world and drawing us more and more and more into Christ. So when you walk with the Lord, you will be hated, you will be mocked, you will be scorned, you will be reviled. When you walk with the Lord, you have no guarantee of health, wealth, and prosperity, but you do have the seal of the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit in you who gives you strength, who carries you along, who is your helper and your comforter and the source of strength in the darkest of days. So joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ. It's verses 12 through 16. Joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And we do that, the, the anchor, the undergirding, the ground below that, is we do that because we've been delivered from judgment. We've been delivered from condemnation. And as Peter promises us in verse 19, God is faithful to his people. So you suffer with joy by fixing your eyes, by by turning your gaze, turning your attention and your focus to Christ and understanding that you've been delivered. You've been delivered from sin. Judgment is coming for the world. Judgment begins with us, with the church. We'll get into all that in a moment. But you've been delivered. You have hope. And you have a faithful God who promises never to leave you nor forsake you. So let's get into that. Let's get into verse 17 and look at this idea of the deliverance of the church. The deliverance of the church. For it is time for judgment to begin 
with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, you have to hear that. You have to remember that. You have to think about that in light of what we just came from. In light of verses 12 through 16 and telling the church to endure suffering, Peter then comes and says, this is his encouragement. This is his follow-up, his comfort. He says, do all this because judgment is coming and it begins with the household of God. You say, how is that encouragement? How is that consolation? How does that enrich our joy? Well, let's look at the text and understand really what Peter is saying and consider the backdrop of all of Scripture. He says it's time. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Time is the Greek word keros or, or kairos, and it speaks of this predetermined, this fixed, this definite time. And so what that tells us is all of what leads up to verse 17 is fixed. It is predetermined. It is a time that the Lord knows specifically. You're suffering. The persecution that you may endure, the hardships that come to you are not the world spiraling out of control. Yes, the world is growing and abounding in wickedness, but that's not the world spiraling out of control. That is God's predetermined plan at work. Throughout the scripture, we see that the Lord often moved and worked among his people when they were under the hands of oppression, when they suffered hardship because of the sin and evil of the world. And really what Peter is getting at here is no different. That all of the sin and evil goes around, it brings hardship on the believer it's all in God's hands because the time of judgment, which for us is a time of deliverance, time of judgment is coming. It's coming at that fixed, appointed time. This is the time for the church. We don't live in the Puritan age. We don't live in the age of the Reformation or the Great Awakening or the early church. We live today. This is the time of the church. This is the time that the Lord has appointed for you and for me and for us to be purged of sin and to be purified. This is the time that the Lord has ordained for us to go and proclaim the gospel for His glory and for the salvation of lost souls. This is the time. For it is time, Peter says, for judgment to begin with the household of God, for judgment to begin. Mike hit on that idea a little bit in our Bible study. Judgment is the Greek word krima, and it speaks almost always in the New Testament of a legal condemning judgment, where there is penalty, where someone has done something wrong, and they are being judged, and they are found guilty. Okay, so that's an important definition to hold on to. We can illustrate that in Scripture. Jude verse 4 says, For four, certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, long beforehand marked out for this judgment, and they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness 
and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's judgment. It's condemnation. It's guilt. Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, writing about an elder, he says that an elder should not be a new convert. He should not be a new convert, and so he does not become conceited and fall into the condemnation that is incurred by the devil. So this is not an encouraging judgment from, from this generic look in Scripture. Judgment equals condemnation, a declaration of guilt and the penalty that comes with that declaration. And so who is this applied to? It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Then Peter says if it begins with us first, so there's some clues there. The household of God, us, the people of God. Think about 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul said, I'm writing to you to tell you how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So the household of God is the church of the living God. And so hopefully this is rattling in your head a little bit. You're thinking, okay, judgment begins with the household of God, and if it begins with us, it begins with the church. How is that encouraging? How does that make any sense? Because we are the church. We're those who are free and forgiven in Christ. And that's where you must look at the whole of Scripture to understand what we're getting at here. Think about Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So there are clues in our context in 1 Peter and then there's clarity in the bigger picture of Scripture. There's no condemnation. There's no catacrima. There's no judgment against those who are in Christ Jesus. So there is a judgment. Judgment of the Lord begins with the household of God, with those who are the church, those who are genuinely in Christ. But when that judgment comes... There's no penalty. There's no remaining punishment. The blood of Jesus washes you clean. There was judgment against you, but that judgment was borne by Christ at the cross if you have come to him in repentance and faith. So what is the judgment of those in Christ? What is the judgment of those who are literally, legitimately in the church? the judgment of Christ's righteousness. It's the hope that you are counted righteous. It's God declaring you to be just. So again, Peter is writing not of the judgment necessarily of the church, but of the deliverance of the church, that you are free from the guilt and the condemnation of your sin. There is no penalty, but you are only counted righteous. There was a penalty. The penalty would have been eternity in hell. But you are counted righteous because Christ took the penalty at the cross. So when you think back to verse 12, verse 13, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Keep on rejoicing, 
You say, how do I do that? It's because judgment's coming. It's beginning with the people of God. And when you are judged as one who is in Christ, the only judgment is that you are righteous, that you're washed, that you're cleansed and clean and pure and holy. And the Lord then calls you to be with him in glory. That's how you keep on rejoicing. That's how you stand firm in the midst of all kinds of suffering because you look to your hope in eternity. So we will face suffering. We will face persecution. We may even face this this judgment of the Lord towards us because Scripture tells us that He disciplines the son that He loves. He chastens a son who is disobedient. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. But in suffering, and even in that chastening, there is no condemnation. There is no eternal penalty. You are free and counted righteous. Just let that sink in. Let let that marinate that you are counted righteous. Being counted righteous, you can say, whatever may come, whatever lies before me, I will keep on rejoicing because I'm a sojourner. I'm a pilgrim. I'm an alien in this world. This world is not my home. For one day I go to be with Christ. Romans 8, verse 6, Paul says, The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the temporary, the mind set on the desires of the flesh is death. But when you walk by the Spirit with eyes fixed upon the Savior, you walk in life and peace and hope and joy. Now, I don't want to move on from this without um, just thinking for just a second about that idea of, of actual judgment, the discipline of the Lord, because there is probably a touch of that in here. The, the Reformation Study Bible makes the comment that the judgment here may also have the purpose of purification or of strengthening our faith. So we've talked about the hopeful nature of this judgment. Let's also understand that there is a purifying component where the Lord is disciplining the one whom he loves so that we share in his holiness. One of our default responses, please hear this clearly, one of our default responses when hardship comes should be to stop and to examine our own lives. Because Scripture is clear that God will chasten His children. He will not spare the rod. He will bring hardship to turn us from fleshly things and to conform us to the image of Christ. So I said I wanted you to hear that clearly. I want you to hear this clearly too that not all suffering is because you're actively in sin. Because the Lord clearly uses suffering and hardship to draw us closer to himself, even if you're not in this active, rebellious, sinful lifestyle. 
So one of our default responses should always be self-examination. And that makes sense, right? That should make sense because suffering should take our eyes from the present and, and lift them to the future. And if your eyes are lifted to the future and you see Christ, what sense would it make if you continued in hard-hearted, unrepentant sin? Suffering should give you such an eternal perspective that any sin that you had ever enjoyed, that you had ever loved, becomes sickening and grotesque and bitter to you. Because that's not what you love. That is not where your hope lies. Your hope lies with Christ in eternity, and he who hopes in Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. Suffering is always meant for our good. Suffering is always meant for our sanctification to conform us to Christ. So as we suffer, may we always recall the deliverance of the Lord. Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 3, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. You have hope because you recall to your mind the loving kindnesses of the Lord, which is your hope of salvation. That is where we place our hope in the deliverance that God brings through Christ. So that's the deliverance of the church. And then Peter addresses the judgment of the world. The judgment of the world in the second part of verse 17 and into verse 18. He says, and if this judgment begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? So the Lord delivers the church, and then he judges the world. Judgment begins, but the judgment of the church is that deliverance. Then judgment comes to the world. For those who do not obey the gospel of God, Peter asks two questions here, and they really have kind of the same answer. He begins by saying, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will be the, the telos, the, the end, the outcome, the limit? What is the end result of the life of these people? What is the ultimate end of those who do not obey the gospel? And before answering what is their end, let's look at their path to that end. Because the path to the end gives us a warning. It says, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? They do not obey the gospel of God. Now, the way that this is phrased in the NAS does not necessarily show you that it is very clearly in the active voice. So really, Peter is not just saying they don't obey, but that they disobey. They're in active disobedience to the gospel of God. This is the state of all who are not in Christ. So if you are not in Christ this morning, hear this. You are disobedient to God's gospel. This is not innocent or mild unbelief. It is an act of rejection of God's truth. 
It is a hard-hearted unwillingness to bring yourself into submission to the God who created all things. There are no innocent people in hell. Everyone who goes to hell goes on their own volition because they are hard-hearted and love their sin. Romans 1 makes this clear. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because of that which is known of God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. There are no innocent people in hell. For even if they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That is what people who are not in Christ do. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and they become darkened because they have hardened their hearts to the truth. And so let's notice how personal this is, what Peter says. They reject the gospel of God gospel of God. This is not some man-made, man-invented, man-contrived path to salvation. This is the gospel that the Godhead determined and brought to pass from eternity past, will complete in eternity future, and accomplished here in space and time. This is God's gospel, and those who are in the world reject it. They reject God's truth, and they reject God himself. Somebody tells you, yeah, I love God, I just don't believe in this Jesus. I just can't submit to that Jesus in the Bible. They don't love God. They reject God because they reject His gospel. So this is not innocent unbelief. It's stone-hearted rejection. Peter asks another question. He says, if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So let me tell you, it may not be immediately evident exactly what Peter is saying here, but there's actually kind of a broad consensus at what he is getting at within the context when, when he says, if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved. For well, one interpretation of that could be that it was, it was hard, it was difficult, for God to save the people that he saves. It cost him a lot. So yeah, it, it was difficult. The, the, the cost was great. It was the blood of Christ. But that's not what Peter's getting at here. He's saying that it's through difficulty. It's through toil and hardship and suffering that the Christian is saved. If the life of the Christian, the life of God's child is this difficult, what do you think? will be the eternal outcome of the one who is not in Christ. If this is the best that the Christian gets, how bad do you think it gets for those who reject the gospel of God in eternal hell? That really is the answer. They get eternal punishment. Matthew Henry wrote of this, that the grievous sufferings of the saints in this world are sad warnings of much heavier judgments coming against impenitent sinners. 
our suffering, the suffering of the saints, is as a warning for the lost. Because the difficulty we face in this world as those who are in Christ is nothing like the hell that is to come for those who reject him. So what is the end of the disobedient? Those who reject the gospel of God, it's eternal death. We talked about that extensively last week. It's not the obliteration of the soul. Souls are eternal. God created us in his image in that way that we live on for eternity. So what's the outcome? It's eternal hell. And hell is described as a horrific place. Jesus himself gave us many descriptions, and there might be something to be learned about the fact that so many of the descriptions that we know of hell came from Jesus himself, because he has that eternal perspective of being God that can give us that illumination. The Lord could have done that through the other writers, but, but Jesus spoke about hell so often. He said that it is the lake of fire. It's a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says that in hell the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. It's a terrifying picture, terrifying image. In Luke 16, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus there describes hell as a place of torment. It's a place of intense agony and overwhelming heat. It's a place where you are burned in darkness and calamity in eternal destruction for all eternity. So what is the outcome of those who disobey the gospel of God? It's that. It's eternal hell. Eternal suffering. It is just holy punishment, just and holy, unreserved wrath. So the path to the deliverance of the church may result in some hardship, but we have the promise of deliverance. But the judgment of the world is this, eternal hell. The outcome of the wicked is eternal destruction. As we, those who are in Christ, walk the path of this life, we remember that suffering prepares for us an eternal weight of glory. This is all the hell that we would ever experience, all the difficulty we will ever experience. Life in eternity for the Christian is life and joy and peace. But the outcome for those who disobey is eternal destruction and condemnation. So all of this, again, flows out of our fellowship with Christ, the suffering that we endure with Christ. This is Peter's, this is the Lord's encouragement and consolation, the deliverance of the church, the judgment of the world, and then lastly, let's consider the faithfulness of the judge, the faithfulness of the judge. Look at verse 19. Peter says there, Therefore, Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what 
is right. So there are three things that we note about our suffering and, and how we see the faithfulness of our judge in this. We see that he is sovereign. We see that we must submit to him. And we see that he is faithful because he always does what is right. So yes, God is sovereign over our suffering. The one who suffers according to the will of God. So this is a sure truth in all things, whether tribulation or whether it's in joy. They happen only according to the will of God. All hardship comes only because God allows it. God uses those circumstances to conform us to Christ. The same for the moments and the times of joy. They pass through God's hand. They're God's gifts to us that we might learn to walk in more joy so that we might be more conformed to Christ. So the Lord is sovereign and he controls all things. Calvin would say it this way. He said that Peter reminds us that we suffer nothing except according to the permission of God. Calvin said, and this tends to comfort us. So dear Christian, be comforted. Be comforted because what you suffer comes through the hand and the permission of God. If God allows it, God will see you through it. Because we entrust ourselves to a faithful creator who does what is right. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. All things. Every moment. Every difficulty. Every trial. Every tear. All things are worked together by God for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. For every trial, every fire, every storm, God is at work. He is preparing for you, and he is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. Dear Saint, do you understand that the weight of glory that you will experience when you've walked through the deepest and darkest of trials is a weight of glory that you could not have known if it weren't for those trials? When the Lord brings suffering, he makes heaven all the more sweet. And come back to that line, calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. So we suffer according to the will of God, and in doing this, we must entrust our souls to Him. We must submit to Him. We suffer according to the will of God, and we shall entrust our souls to our faithful Creator. So we don't suffer begrudgingly or resistantly now. I can tell you that none of us desire trial. None of us wake up in the morning and say, can't wait to see what difficulty may come today. But when they come, you have a joy. You have a hope. You entrust your soul to the Lord. You learn to embrace the sorrows. You learn to kiss the waves that 
throw you upon the rock of ages. To entrust means to deposit something. It's to deposit something to the care and keeping of another. So think about that. Think about that. What does Peter say? Does he say that you entrust your life to a faithful creator? No, you, you do trust your life. You entrust your life. You deposit your life in the hands of God. But the only way that you're able to do that is because you've entrusted your soul, your soul, your eternity. You've entrusted your eternity, your eternal soul, to the faithful God who does what is right. You deposit your present life into the hands of the Lord because He has purchased your soul for eternity. Think that one through. You deposit all things of the present life to God because He has already purchased you for eternity. For I am His and He is mine. I am His. He is mine because I'm bought with the precious blood of Christ. You're in the hands of the Good Shepherd and no one can snatch you out of His hand and His Father who has given you to Him is greater than all and no one will snatch you from the Father's hand. So you entrust yourself, your present and your eternal future, to the Lord. Because He will keep you. He will protect you. He will sustain you. He will provide for you. And He will eternally deliver you. What a glorious hope. So how do we do this? What's the undergirding to that? You entrust your souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The Lord always does what is right. The Lord always does what is best for us, what is for our eternal good. Think about what Jesus did. We're in 1 Peter, right? Think about what Jesus did in what Peter described in chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, it said that he committed no sin nor is any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. How did he do all this? Because he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Dear friend, be like Christ. Be like Christ and entrust yourself to your faithful creator because he always does what is good and what is right. As we've already read, the scriptures tell us that the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. His mercies are new every morning. Praise the Lord, great is his faithfulness. Jeremiah would then say, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. So as you consider God's faithfulness, you must understand that he is good when you seek him. So how do you seek the faithful God? How do you entrust yourself to your faithful creator to do what is right? You remember his promises. 
Say that again a hundred times. You remember and recount and recall his promises. You know his word. His word lives in you. It comes out at, at every moment. It is your source of strength and hope and sustaining grace. It's to know his word and to remember his promises, to remember that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, forever. You recall his faithfulness. Look back over the course of your life and remember how God has been faithful. And and sometimes that is difficult. Sometimes it's hard to see if you've lived a long life of hardship, it's hard to, to immediately recount the Lord's faithfulness. So don't think about the present life. Think about His faithfulness in eternity. And that He sent His Son to take the punishment for your sins, and He calls you His own through Christ. Recall the Lord's faithfulness. Submit to the Lord's plans. Again, uh, that... That can just be so difficult. It can be a very fearful thing to, to battle with the flesh as you submit to God's plans. Because the Lord often builds his people incrementally through suffering. So, so you might suffer a, a smaller hardship today, but that's only preparing you because you're going to suffer a, a more difficult one later. Then you walk through that one. The Lord sees you through that one. The next hardship is going to get even more difficult. But we submit to his plans. And look over the course of history. So often, not always, not always, but often the Lord will grant, whether it's a day or a season or a period uh, of, of ease. Sometimes he doesn't, and we, we just rely on his grace. You just rely on His grace. You, you remember His promises and you try to take your, your gaze off the present because sometimes the present can be so hard. It can be so difficult. It can bring so much sorrow. And so if you've walked through trial after trial after trial and you say, when is that season uh, of joy or knees coming? Dear saint, at the very least, comes in glory. Fix your eyes upon the prize. Fix your eyes, strive after the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the Lord will deliver His church. He will judge the world. And in both of those, there will be suffering. There will be hardship on us, the church, because of the Lord's judgment of the church, his deliverance of the church, and his judgment of the world. You stand firm. You remain. You keep on rejoicing. Walk in righteousness and suffer only for the name of Christ, not under the chastening hand of the Lord. The Lord is indeed a just judge and a faithful creator. God is faithful to every one of his promises. His mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. His loving kindnesses 
never cease. His compassions never fail. Walk in the grace of God when you have no other strength. And when you think you have strength, walk in the grace of God because assuredly the moment you think you stand on your own, the Lord will bring you low. Walk in the Lord's grace. Close with this as you think about suffering, as you think about hardship and and suffering for Christ, you may be familiar with the early church father, man named Polycarp. We go all the way back to the early 100s. And he was a man who walked with the Lord, and he was martyred for his faith. He was, uh, history tells us, he was tied to a stake to be burned. Somehow the fire didn't consume him, and so he was stabbed to be put to death. A gruesome death. A hard death. He was tied to the stake. He was told to recant of his faith in Christ, his preaching of Christ. And this is what Polycarp had to say. An old man, 86 years old, said, 86 years I have served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? We may not be to 86 years yet, but what injury has the Lord done to you? How would you blaspheme your King and Savior by not walking with Him through trial, knowing that He holds you and He keeps you? May we imitate that great faith. Even if we go and are tied to a stake to be burned, May we imitate great faith. May we walk with the Lord for the sake of his glory forever and ever. Walk by the Spirit. Remember God's faithful promises. And entrust yourself to a faithful creator who always does what is right. Let's pray.